All right, uh, let's have Steve open in a word of prayer for us. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the marvelous way in which you have communicated your special revelation to us for the gift of language, for the preservation of the language in which the, uh, the Bible was written, and the ability to recover that meaning uh, from the texts that have been preserved over the centuries. We thank you for faithful men like Ray, Dr. Ray, who have prepared themselves to teach this material to us. And we ask for the enablement of the Holy Spirit for this class to take these lessons, to absorb them and understand them and be able to apply. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. As I was saying just before we started recording our session, well, first of all, this is the 10th session, so we're getting very, very close to the very end of the course. There's four more that we have scheduled, so we're getting close to the, uh, the finish line here, if you will, using a running metaphor. Uh, I mentioned that diagramming is the probably the most difficult area in this course, and it's especially difficult if you've struggled at all with, with um, language or grammar, issues related to that, and even if you were good at it, for some of you that have been out of school a long time, it's been a long time since you've thought about diagramming a sentence, so uh, yes, it's difficult. The only reason I include it is because I have found it to be probably the most useful area. In fact, today, one of the things I want to get into is show you how you can take the diagramming that you did and take it to the next step and from that diagramming everything else is going to fall out of it particularly your your outline which we'll focus in on today so yes it's difficult uh, you you can get over a hump to so to speak where it becomes just part of the exegetical process for a lot of people I wouldn't recommend necessarily that they beat themselves up with it. But if you're going to be a Bible teacher and your primary ministry, I think, is teaching, then I would encourage uh, more effort in that area. But you need to evaluate what what you need in terms of your ministry and, and your growth and that sort of thing. So... It's not the essential part of the course, but in some way, you do have to analyze the grammatical structure of a passage. And if basic analysis is all that you can do, then I think you have about 80 to 90 percent of the analysis of any given sentence in any passage in the Bible. So with that said, today we will actually continue in that area of structural analysis, looking at the science and art of interpretation. We're emphasizing the interpretive stage. Technically, we call that exegesis. And when we speak technically, we're referring to utilizing the original languages, this course 
limits our study to the English text. It's usually offered one of the first courses of seminary training for semester. Some of you are taking the course for the first time, so you're getting in at the ground level. So it's offered at, at the English level. Later on, after you've taken first-year Greek, then you do Greek exegesis. After you've taken first-year Hebrew, then you take Hebrew exegesis. And you'll go over these same principles, basically, except you'll go into the original languages as well. And your study will be more refined than you, what you can expect from simply a translation. So we're talking about exegesis. We've looked at observations, spent lots of time looking at obser- observing the text. Today we want to focus again, as we have the last few weeks, on interpretation. What does it mean? Bottom line is we're seeking the author's intended meaning or willed meaning. We've looked at the biblical text. That was more just for background, for introduction, for you, just to be able to understand what's going on. Even in the English text, when it gives you a footnote and refers to the original text, and sometimes words are left out, and you'll have a notation in your English Bible. And you won't be able to do a whole lot in establishing the text from the English, because you have to go to the Greek language. But I wanted you to have that background just to know what's going on there. During the Greek or Hebrew exegesis course, we spent at least three hours on textual criticism. Look at that whole area in a lot more detail. But you have the basics to it, apart from some of the uh, specific actual doing of the... uh, Textual criticism. We spent some time on word studies, one of the most important areas of study in coming to the meaning of words. What do words mean and how do you derive that meaning? And we're talking about words as intended by the author. What did Paul mean by a particular particular word he may have used? Or if you're in the Old Testament, what was the meaning of that word that was intended by Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or whoever, Nahum or whatever book you're studying. And this is doing an original word study. I gave you some ways where you can find the original word, both Greek and Hebrew, and with a lot of the electronic Programs that are available today, it makes it fairly easy to do a word study with using the original language word. But whether you do it from the English, it's not as precise, but uh, you still, the bottom line is attempting to see what that word that the author uses, what he intended the meaning to be. So we looked at word studies. We started our study on structural analysis, that was last week, and structural analysis, there are two major areas that we have talked about. One of them is the structure within a a sentence itself, 
and that primarily deals with the grammar, the relationship of all of the words in that sentence. How do they all work together to communicate that unit of thought or that idea that that sentence is trying to convey? So that's structural analysis within the sentence. Structural analysis also involves dealing with sentences with one another, paragraphs, and things outside of the sentence. We'll touch on it a little bit today. I, I gave you a little bit of that when we were talking about observation, and we'll look some more at that today, particularly when you begin to put together an outline. When you're trying to outline an entire book, you're doing structural analysis. You're Trying to figure out how did the author lay out his material? What is his game plan, you might say, in trying to communicate the content of that book? He has in mind certain things that he's going to say at the beginning that are either going to lead into or support or are essential for understanding things that will follow later on. So how does he organize that material, that structural analysis on that broader level? And our bottom line here is we are attempting to think God's thoughts because authors are reflecting God's revelation, what they received from God, and then God moved them or inspired them to write what they have written, we believe, are the very thoughts that God communicated and structural analysis and attempt to understand those thoughts so that we understand what God has communicated not only to the original authors, not only to that first century audience, but also because of inspiration, what God has intended to communicate long-range to you and I that live thousands of years after the original writing. So that's what we started last week. How do you analyze the structure within a sentence? And now we're going to take it one step beyond just the analysis part. We're still analyzing and we're still doing structural analysis, but it's a, another stage here. Once I've either figure out how these thoughts that are in this sentence fit together and how does one sentence fit together with another sentence to form a paragraph or two sentences, three sentences, whatever. Now what do I do and how do I organize that so I'm thinking God's thoughts after him? And one tool, this is obviously not something that is inspired in any way, but a helpful tool is to be able to outline those thoughts, to see how they fit together, see how the author is, is structuring these thoughts on a big scale. I gave you a little practice of trying to discern how does an author organize his material in the whole book. That's the divisional level. And I encourage you to also look at the subdivisional level as well. That's 
on some level, uh, an initial level, you're doing structural analysis there. So you've already had a little bit of an exposure to that, but you want to work that outline because those subdivisions also have parts. A subdivision can be three or four chapters long or even longer in longer books. So how do all those chapters, how are they organized? And you keep breaking those down eventually till you get paragraphs, and then you deal within the paragraph and then within sentences. So, you, so you're dealing with outlining the book. And if you can do that, uh, my experience is, is once I'm comfortable with an outline of a passage, I, I feel like I understand what God is communicating. I understand what that original author is attempting to accomplish in the book and what he's trying to communicate in the individual words. So it's no longer just a mass of words that follow one another, but it begins to make sense and I can kind of have a clearer picture of what God is saying through through that individual passage or that whole book that I'm looking at. So let me give you a little bit of background or detail concerning outline and what you're looking for, what you're striving to do. The bottom line is you're striving to see how the author has organized his material. He's got major things that he's communicating, major points. Lesser points, lesser than that, all the way down to phrases that he includes. And in some cases, if you have an outline that is that detailed, you're, you're outlining even down to sometimes phrases and words. And that's what an exegetical outline is, whether it's from the original languages or, in our case, in this course, using the English text. So outlining, one thing that determines your outline is the grammar itself dictates the outline. This is just the nature of communication. This is just how God has structured language and how languages are structured such that within sentences, that grammar, that's going to dictate the outline especially within a sentence, but once you understand that sentence, then how sentences fit together with one another. So grammar is going to dictate an outline, particularly within a sentence. The outline reflects that structure, that organization, that way that that particular author has laid down those thoughts. And that's the only reason we're doing this. We're not trying to be experts in grammar. We're attempting to get at the thoughts and the organization that the author presents. This is just basic language, basic literature. So outlining is a tool that attempts to get you there. If you can do it without an outline, that's fine. I mean, this, you know, you don't, me, it's not essential or absolutely essential to, to outline. But if you can do that, then you have a better feel and a better 
handle on how the author has structured his material. And since I put together an outline for myself, when I'm teaching through a book, I also produce sometimes a simplified outline that doesn't have all the detail, and I might even uh, make it more easily understandable as well to a general audience, but I'll hand out an outline of the passage I'm teaching, and I do that routinely week after week. I'll send out an outline of the passage that we're going to deal with, and because the outline is dictating the thoughts, uh, last Let's see, not this last Sunday, but the Sunday before, I just taught on one single verse, handed out somewhat detailed outline for that one verse, and still didn't get through that one verse. Sometimes I'll have three or four verses because they that's where the break is, and even ahead of time, I know I'm not going to be able to cover all that material because of the nature of whatever we're talking about, Book of Romans, which is quite detailed. So I'll use that same outline the following week. But it is the basis of the study, and people have it in their hands, and a lot of people in most of the places that I teach usually take lots of notes, so it gives them a handy place to put notes as well, because I leave lots of spaces between the points of the outline. But it helps them follow not only what I'm trying to communicate, and what I'm trying to communicate is what Paul is communicating. So if I'm accurate in that communication it gives them an outline of God's thoughts as he has revealed them through Paul or whoever the book that we're studying so out the outline reflects the structure all the way down to paragraphs I've been talking on the larger basis on divisions subdivisions segments sections that sort of thing But uh, you go down to the paragraphs. By definition, a paragraph is a unit of thought, so it is a main point in an outline. It's a sub-point in relationship to the divisions. In fact, I'll give you a breakdown here in a minute. I'm just kind of bringing out some of the basics of outlining here. But your main, main points are your divisions, and then you have your subdivisions. Remember all those structural units all the way down to the paragraphs? But paragraphs, you want to summarize them as a main point, trying to understand what is that unit of thought that the author is communicating. What is the essence of what he's saying in that paragraph? And you're going to want to reduce it down to no more than a sentence. And in a lot of cases in my outlines, I sometimes do it in one word. If I can get it in one word, that's great. Or somewhere in between a word and a sentence. The main, the main point of that paragraph or the the main unit of thought or that unit of thought that the paragraph conveys. Sentences would be subpoints of that paragraph. And then clauses, subpoints within those sentences as well. So sentences and clauses would be subpoints. And then you keep going down and you can find the different parts within a sentence at the clause level. And then clauses may have parts as well. Now what I sent you 
in the email as an example of the diagramming that we did last week, and we'll go over that later, and you'll see uh, how all this kind of fits together in what I'm explaining here, kind of in broad strokes here. <clears throat> so obviously following from sentences and clauses, you have clauses or phrases. These are lesser points. And in some cases, uh, you might even uh, have an outline that includes words all the way down to like pastor, teacher, etc., or prophets, evangelists, etc. These are all part of your outline. And you can probably already see you already began somewhat moving from the text to an outline when you did mechanical layout. And I'm going to show you that uh, you did it in more detail when you came up with the uh, diagramming. So I'll try to explain how all that fits together. So what is the main idea, at least what am I using that two-word phrase to mean? Uh, you could say it's, I'm talking about a main point, or I'm talking about the essence at any one of these structural levels. So when I say a main idea at the divisional level, how can I summarize everything in that division with a phrase or no more than a sentence? That's what I mean by a main idea. Or if it's at the subdivisional level, the main idea of everything within that subdivision. Or if it's down to the paragraph, what is the main idea of that paragraph? Or if it's at the level of a sentence, what is the main idea of this sentence. What is the essence of it? What is the author saying? I'm trying to summarize it in a simple and brief way without all of the detail attached to it. So that's what I mean by main idea. If, uh, you need a definition, so to speak. And what a main idea should do, it should summarize the content of the outline at that particular level. So if it's at the divisional level, it summarizes everything contained within that division. If it's at the sentence level, the main idea should summarize the content of that particular sentence. If it's at the paragraph level, it should summarize that entire paragraph. So that's what I mean by main idea. So, outlining, generally, there's different ways of outlining. What I'm giving you is a pretty standard, very common uh, structure of an outline. We've talked about a lot of this already. So, here's the division. So, the division at the divisional level, you're coming up with a main idea or another way of Phrasing it, maybe a title. And if it's a title, that title is summarizing everything contained in that division. I've already said that. At the subdivisional level, that main idea summarizes everything within that subdivision. So everything that follows there, until you get to the B, you're summarizing in some way. 
And like I said, the bottom line is you're just trying to figure out how did God structure all of these ideas that are contained here. And you're just thinking God's thoughts after him. The next level is number one. So I have a Roman numeral division, divisional level, a capital A, subdivisional level, and then under A I have one. And some longer books may have sections, and if there's a section, then it's a main idea. That's a structural unit. Similarly, you have parts of sections. So you have a subdivision, main idea, or title, getting the feel for what I'm doing here. And typical outlines, you have Roman numerals, uh, capital A, one, little a. So you have uh, a one with uh, open parentheses. Some cases it will be a paragraph level. It's not always at this level. It could be at other levels. For example, Philemon, the paragraph may be uh, at one without the parentheses, depending on the length of the book or the detailed outline that you come up with of the book. So here's the paragraph level. And then within that little a, you'd have generally sentences fall into that or at least clauses, but oftentimes I try to figure out if the sent- if the paragraph has four sentences, I'll have an A, B, C, and D. And by the way, if you have an A, uh, by definition of outlining, you need to have a B. Uh, if you have a, a little A with a par- half parentheses, you have to have a little B with a half or open parentheses. So if you have a one, you have to have a two. And if you have a little a, you have to have a b. And obviously, if you have a one, you have to have a two. If you have an a, you have to have a capital B. And then you have to have a Roman numeral two. Otherwise, you don't have a division. Division, by definition, are two or more of the major parts whatever you're outlining. That makes sense? This is pretty standard outlining that we're applying to the biblical text. And it's a tool. It's it's the outlining is not inspired, but the biblical text is inspired and God chose to reveal his mind in the way that he structured our thinking, and this is part of the way that our thinking is structured such that we put things into these categories in this outline. Everybody following so far? Yes. Silent means everybody's following. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Andrea. Main idea should summarize the content of the outline. This outline obviously is reflecting the biblical text and the structure of that biblical text. The outline should be an expansion of the main idea. So what I mean by that, at the divisional level, the main idea summarizes everything within it. And then everything within the outline under that divisional level is an expansion of the main idea of that divisional title that I gave. See what I'm saying? Kind of the inverse here, or what do you call it, the counterpart. I'm saying the same thing from two different 
perspectives, I guess is what I'm trying to communicate here. Should I say it again? At the divisional level, as an example, you come up with a summary of everything within it, and then everything within that outline should be an expansion of that main idea. And that main idea of that division breaks down into two or more subdivisions, and then those subdivisions into sections or segments. It's another unit, depending on the size of the book. So, uh, kind of to emphasize what I just said, at the divisional level, your title should summarize whatever you have within it should summarize A, B, C, and if you have a D or an E or an F or however many you have, your title that you give to that division should summarize all of the, those subdivisional points. Within the A, that should summarize one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever number of points that you have within there. You have to have at least two, one and two. Similarly, it's kind of getting repetitious here. At the level of the one, everything that you title there should summarize the little a, little b, little c, etc. And on as you go into the outline. So you can have a, a, a one with an open parenthesis, a little a with an open parenthesis. You can have a one with a complete Parentheses, you can have a little a with a complete parentheses, and you can even go even deeper than that, depending on the detail of your outline. Okay? So that's kind of the essence of what outlining is all about. Let's take the example that we looked at last week that Acts 1, 7, and 8 passage and show you how I come up with an outline. And at this point, we're, we're dealing with just at the sentence level. So we're deep into the broader outline. In fact, I'll give you an outline of the early part of the book of Acts to see how the, that sentence fits into the broader outline. So let's use that as an example. And I gave you this last time, the diagramming of of the uh, sentence, which begins in verse 7 and ends at verse 8. Remember the diagramming that we did? So now we, in our diagramming, now we can visually see all of the parts and have a pretty good idea of how everything relates to one another. We were able to solve, you might say, the puzzle of that sentence such that every part of it is now before me and visible. And it gives me a a sense of, well, what's most important here and what, you know, uh, what is lesser important. And within a sentence... You have to have at least one independent clause. And last time, remember, we identified four independent clauses. So this is not a simple sentence. We have four independent clauses. We have one that 
is something of a controlling independent clause. That's the very beginning of the sentence. He said to them, and then everything else is the content of what he said to them. And in a sentence, it would have uh, parentheses. In other words, he said, or not parentheses, uh, quotation marks. So this is the quotation marks. And within that, we have three independent clauses that we talked about last time that make up what he said. And we saw the first one at the top there. It is not for you to know times or epochs. There's probably an article in there that I left off, huh? Hmm. I'll have to revise that. Anyway, it's a little minor. And we also notice that there's a dependent clause as, or at least modifying this, a part of this first independent, or second independent clause. First in terms of the content of what is said. And that dependent clause, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So we have subject and verb identified and everything that modifies it. And last time we saw a but that kind of contrasts, so we're going to have a contrastive idea introduced here that's going to need to be reflected on the outline. And now that gives us the last two independent clauses. You will receive power and you shall be something, you shall be witnesses. The first one has a dependent clause that modifies the receiving. You'll receive it when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then the second one doesn't have a dependent clause, but it has a long string of prepositional phrases that are geographic, primarily geographic in nature. So that's the structure of Acts 1, 7 through 8. We've analyzed it, and we have a good feel for it. Those are the parts. So now, in my outline, somehow I'm going to reflect within that sentence of this, or the outline of this sentence, I've got to have probably a sub-point that summarizes he said to them in some way. Because that's our first independent clause. I'm also going to have a statement that tries to summarize the second independent clause that includes an infinitive that is modified by a subordinate clause. So I'm going to have that. And then I'm going to want to break that one down some more. The first one's not going to have too many parts under it, but the second one's going to have some parts under it in an outline. But see, this is already forming my outline for me. You see what I'm doing here? And I'm going to do the same with the next independent clause, because that's the next major level. And then we'll do the same thing with the last independent clause. Everybody following here? This should illustrate to you how the diagram, and by the way, you can do the same thing with mechanical layout. You can do the identical same thing with mechanical layout. You can do the same thing with basic analysis if you write down the things that we talked about because it's basically isolating these independent clauses or dependent clauses as well and subjects and verbs. 
So you can do the same thing, and from that analysis, this is going to transition into now i got to summarize. I'm, I'm going to summarize everything that's in that circle, or these five circles, or four circles, rather. Or wait a minute, how many? One, Yeah, four circles. So I want to try to capture the essence within all of those parts. So let's try to transfer that into an outline. This uh, clear. I, if it's not, we need. I need to kind of explain it because otherwise everything else will not make sense. Clear. Good. Okay. Silence means it's clear. So, uh, we also have subordinate clauses, so these are secondary, so I kind of color them a little bit differently, at least to illustrate here. And by the way, you could do this if you wanted to with your diagramming, but it's not essential, it just clutters up your diagramming, so I don't do it, but at least I'm doing it so that you can see what I'm doing. Uh, Because it's clear enough, visually, for me just to see, okay, I've got... These four independent clauses, three of them are the content of the first one. But I also have uh, two dependent clauses, and one of them is tied to the the second independent, and the other one is tied to the third one. So I'm just kind of emphasizing the next major part of this sentence, and that will fall into my outline. So let's outline it. Now, obviously, this is part of a broader outline that begins with verse 1. We're starting at verse 7 here, but so I have to go back, and this is where your preliminary study, or if you're teaching the book of Acts, you've already exegeted the first six verses, and you already have an exegetical outline for those first six verses. And since it begins, it'll be the first Roman numeral, it'll be the first division, and in this case, you probably figured out that that first major division is the introduction to the whole book, which runs through verse 11, and then you've broken down those first 11 verses into their parts, so within this small subdivision, this is small subdivision, You'll have a Roman numeral, or not a Roman, uh, you'll have a capital A, and in your analysis you came to the conclusion that first five verses are the aftermath of the resurrection. Now I've chosen that word for a particular reason, you'll see as I move further in. One of the things I sometimes do if it, if it seems to just be conducive to the passage. This is an example of the way that I might send out an outline. Now I'll space it in a sheet of paper so people could take notes in between the parts of it. But oftentimes I'll try to alliterate. So a lot of my outlines will have alliteration. And this is what I have in this one. So one through five is the aftermath of the reservation. Uh, resurrection. So I'm using A as my alliterative key here. I notice 6 through 11 go together. That's a paragraph. And 
I start with ascension, with instructions. So that was kind of the driver as to what I'm going to alliterate or use as an alliterative key. So ascension is kind of a main thought throughout this whole latter part. So ascension with instructions, that's 6 through 11. So this has two parts. I'm not giving you the detail, 1 through 5, but I'm showing you how it all fits within the outline. So I'm going to continue with the alliteration. And 1, I I see a few parts that make up 6 through 11. In fact, I break it down by sentence. So sentence number one under ascension with instructions is, uh, is anticipation of the kingdom. This is a question by the disciples. And if you want to expand it, you might say anticipation of the kingdom by the disciple, of the disciples or something along those lines. I've kind of narrowed it down very briefly. Three words. Just a little title you might even say so that's sentence number one so now we're at sentence number two and since it's something that jesus is teaching or communicating i call it advisement just to fit in with my alliteration here and you might say advisement for ministry by jesus Uh, this might be the way that you outline it for yourself in your notes And what I will do is I will type out a sheet or print out a sheet, more abbreviated, and this is what I might pass out in a class that I might be teaching on the book of Acts. So we have anticipation of the kingdom, and then we have advisement for ministry that follows because Jesus is really answering their question. So I call it advisement for ministry, 7 through 8. So that's the passage that we have diagrammed or we're dealing with right now. There'll be parts after the one, but I'm abbreviating here since this is the passage in question. This is the passage we're studying this week, so to speak. So I have a little A. I'm going to break that one down. And this kind of captures at least the first, in some way, captures those first two independent clauses. Now, if I wanted to, I might just try to get at that first independent clause separately, but it kind of goes together with the first part or the first part of the quotation or the uh, content. So I call that the area of inattention because he tells them, you know, don't be concerned about these things. That's virtually all of verse 7. And I try to break that one into parts. Now, this is a little harder because I only have, uh, I have different kinds of things going on in that, but I do have a denial of what they're not to know. In other words, don't, you're not to know, what did we say? It's not for you to know certain things. So a denial of knowing. Now, my alliteration breaks down a little bit here. Uh, And the denial of not knowing deals with times of interest. In other words, they're interested in the timing of the kingdom, and he doesn't want them to concentrate on that. So it deals with that. So I've kind of broken that down. I've broken down that first part. And there's a third thing. This summarizes the dependent clause, which deals with 
these are things that the Father has fixed. In other words, summarize it by God in his providence has fixed certain things. So the providence of the Father here. And that kind of summarizes all of verse 7. Now, you could even go into more detail if if uh, it would be helpful. But in general, I might only hand out the little a, but I would have in my notes 1, 2, and 3. And we continue. So, if you have a 1, it's not going back for some reason. If you uh, notice I have a 1 and I have a 2, little a, little 1, little 2, little 3. Actually, I think I have a mistake. No, I'm summarizing. Yeah. I'm capturing the advisement of ministry, area of inattention. Now, in verse 8... This is also part of the content of what he is saying to them. I'm alliterating again. We have area of attention. In other words, there's an area that he doesn't want them to pay attention to, at least now. And he wants them to be attentive to everything in verse 8. So that kind of summarizes the the two parts of verse 8. Or... The main clauses, and since there's only one dependent clause, I kind of elevated it to the level of the dependent clauses. So I have actually three parts here. And he deals with power that will be made available to them. This is what he wants them to pay attention to. And this power has a future time frame. We have the power source when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And in some way, it would probably even be better if I included maybe a time word in there to kind of give that idea. But even simpler, maybe not as clear, is power source. And then the last independent clause, predicting witnesses. I kind of changed my alliteration in there, but that's okay as well. So we have power available, we have the source of that power, and then we have a predicting of them being witnesses. Uh, And if you wanted to, you could even add in the outline, at least in your notes, a little a little a with a half parentheses, a little b, a little c to include Jerusalem in the locations of the witnesses, Jerusalem, etc. Judea and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, you could add to that outline. Main thing I'm trying to illustrate here is this outline comes right out of my structural analysis, right out of, in this case, my diagramming. Does everybody see that? Comes right out of the diagramming. Yeah, this is helpful to show it this way. Hopefully. And since my, what was it, my uh, my B 
included 6 through 11. I'm just in the middle of it. I'm just at point 2 here. So there's probably a 3 that includes at least verse 9. If I summarize verse 9, here is the description of the ascension into heaven. That's verse 9. And uh, if that's a sentence, that's a complete sentence. At this level, I've got the 1, 2, 3 are at the sentence level. So there's a fourth sentence in that paragraph, 10 and 11. We have angels with an explanation. It's 10 and 11. And I maintain my alliteration, advisement for ministry, ascension into heaven, angels with explanation. So that would give you an outline and what I might pass out on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening, whenever, uh, would probably be at the, depending on if I was just doing seven and eight, I would include area of inattention, area of attention. And if that was as far as I was going to go, I might show what would be coming the next week. Number three there, ascension into heaven. And then the outline I hand out the following week would include whatever else I was going to try to cover that week. Can I ask a question here about our paper? Yes. Uh, you said you want us to use an outline format and then include commentary. Where yep. does the commentary fit? Does it go like in a little separate paragraph without a number under the outline element? And do you do it for every outline element? Yes. Okay. Yeah, interspersed within the outline. What I mean, and and what you're putting in that little description or paragraph is some of your reasoning as to why you came to this conclusion, this area of inattention, and you're you're basically explaining your outline and you're you're interspersing it. If you're dealing with little a there, area of inattention, you'd have now you have your exegetical paper comments within that. And one way of doing this is you might put the outline in bold print and then your commentary in uh, non-bolded okay. print. That makes sense? Yeah, so we could just actually carry the text on after the outline title. Yes. Title. But just keep the title bolded so you know what was actually the outline. Right. You can fill you can fill the margins. You don't have to you know keep indenting because you know it kind of distorts the the paper there. So just fill the whole margins with your little explanatory paragraph. Okay. And we'll talk some more about that in a moment. Okay. Thanks. In terms of what you're doing in the commentary. So area of uh, inattention, then you'd have, after that, you'd have your commentary, then you have area of attention, and you could put one between the B and the 1 with the half parentheses, or you could put it between the power, between the 1 and the 2, and and comment on the 2 together. That's what I mean by interspersed within the outline, you have your commentary. And by the way, this is what I do. I don't, I don't write an exegetical paper, but I take notes. I, you know, I have maybe a word study or something and 
I'll do the word study on a separate sheet of paper or sheets of paper. But at that point, I'll have a note to myself, uh, something to the effect, see word study, uh, and whatever the word is, I might put that word in there so that I know I may, I have a word study along with it, along with the, the notes that I'm putting together. But if I have a, maybe I have a comment that I found in a commentary or something that I want to remember or helps understand what I'm doing here, that'll be part of my commentary or part of my notes that I'm putting together. In your commentary, since you're, you're not looking at an outside commentary, you won't have any of that. But down the road, when you're doing your study and you come across something, you can reference that commentary or summarize what the writer is saying, whatever you need to kind of preserve the work that you are doing. We'll talk more about that later as well. So that's your brief outline of Acts 1, 7 through 8 within its context. We have the context preceding, so I gave you a little bit of uh, first six verses. And I gave you a little bit of the context that follows verses 9 through 11 as well. And obviously, if you're teaching through the book, you just keep building week after week after week until you get to the end. Now you have a very precise outline of the whole book of Acts. So the main idea, this is just kind of to go back. How can I summarize what I have in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, and in a little bit more expanded form? In other words, what I've got it in the outline, as I showed you, but uh, and I just called it advisement for ministry, but how can I kind of expand that to kind of give me a better feel for the total content, might come up with something like Jesus' final ascension advice or advisement. That's where I get the word advisement. Concerning the future kingdom, that's what he doesn't want them to be concerned about. And their immediate ministry, that's what he wants them, that's the area of attention that he wants them to focus in on. That make sense? Yes, is this an example of the kind of commentary that you're looking for, or? It's kind of an example of both. Okay. Both commentary, yeah, yeah. In, when you come up with a main idea for the paragraph that you're studying, I want you to come up with something like this. But notice, it's a little bit of an expansion of the, what's more of a title in my outline. It's a main idea as well, but it's very condensed. This is a little bit of an expansion of it. So in the paper, when I say give me the main idea of your passage, that's what I'm asking for. Okay, so this is not necessarily a commentary. I don't understand your question. Just the, the, the commentary that's interspersed between the outline elements, is this an example of that? No, I'm asking, when you write your paper, I'm going to ask you, what's the main idea of your paragraph? Okay. Yeah, and this is, 
So the, comment- the commentary would expand upon this. Yeah. 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 And why you came to some of the conclusions in the statement that you have here. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, you'll, you'll notice, uh, when I say main idea, I'm, I'm talking about in this case, the main idea of chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, which is a complete sentence. Um, but the main idea of the paragraph, you're summarizing the essence of that paragraph, which is a compilation of maybe three or four sentences. I asked you to get the main idea of the whole book. Remember, we talked about that. Yes. The whole book of Ephesians. You came up with the main idea. Now you're coming up with the main idea of Ephesians 5, whatever passage you're, you're, you're dealing with. Okay? Okay. Okay. Remember last time we did Ephesians. Let me give you another example. And I sent you an an example of an outline of this passage that we diagrammed last time. And we have, and I hope I didn't confuse you by putting two sentences together here. <clears throat> uh, so let me explain that again so that you don't have any confusion. Uh, you actually have two sentences from 11 through 16. And the only reason I put them together was from 14 to 16, along with 11 through 13, is in the Greek text, that's one sentence. The New American Standard breaks it down into two. So I would encourage you to at least start with just, the if you're using New American Standard, Standard or New King James to limit your paragraph, you know, go ahead and go with those paragraphs unless you disagree with the translators for some reason. So I hope I didn't confuse you. I I just wanted you to see um, if you're using a broader paragraph, like what you find in the original Greek text, then this is what it would look like. If you're separating out the English, then uh, you'd have two diagrams and... Uh, 14 through 16 would be a separate diagram. Confuse anybody? Does see what I'm saying here? But anyway, uh, let's break it down and transfer from the diagramming to the outline. And I think you all remember what the independent clause that controls everything, at least everything, 11 through 13, and in fact also controls 14 through 16. It's that first independent clause, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So one subject, one verb controls everything, and everything else is just telling me something about whoever the he is. And if we conclude that it's Christ, then Christ gave certain things, and everything else just tells us something about it. In fact, we have, even in the independent clause, the things that he gave, as some as apostles, prophets, etc., 
So that's kind of a summary idea. So I'm going to have this giving idea almost controlling the whole outline because that's the main thought here. That's the main part of everything from 11 through 16, the giving of something. All right. So we have a independent clause. Now, this is not a clause, but this is an important part here, this series of prepositional phrases that we've commented a little bit on. So we want to capture all of those, and we might even elevate that to the same level that we do maybe another clause. We'll see how, how we break it out. So we're going to have to put all that together in verse 13. That's a dependent clause introduced with until. So I'm capturing until. In other words, there's a time frame. He's giving of these gifts for whatever this purpose. And that's real important. A purpose for these the giving of these gifts, verse 12. And that purpose is going to continue until certain things, until we all attain to something. So everything is going to, in that subordinate clause, is telling us something about the attaining. And the we, in that context, you have to figure out who the we refers to. And if you conclude, since the author includes himself, maybe it's Paul and the readers, at least. The Ephesians, unless you see a broader audience there, which is possible. So we have the we. And until they attain to certain things, and since it's inspired, it probably goes beyond them, and it probably speaks broadly in terms of the greater body of Christ. So until the body of Christ attains to certain thing, things, a uh, certain amount of unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, uh, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, and then he's going to expand the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we have a subordinate clause there. So we have a independent or two subordinate clauses, one that is subordinate to the, the other one. Uh, you might even pop, what might pop into your mind at this stage is an application. And the question pops in, how are we doing as a church? Are we there yet? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, so, uh, you could outline it such that you have an outline that reflects that much because there's a period at the end of verse 13, in the New American Standard at least. But if you're looking at it as a broader paragraph, then you have more subordinate ideas, and they modify the giving as well. In other words, the giving of these, whatever, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, result in something. As a result, we are to be certain things or not to be certain things. We are no longer to be children. And then he gives a couple of uh, participles to describe the no longer being, no longer being tossed here and there by waves and carried about by wind of doctrine and trickery of men, craftiness and scheming, etc. 
But we have the alternative or the contrast. We are to be something. So something that we are no longer to be. He's encouraging maturity. So I think verse 13 seems to give a a long-range picture. And 14 and 15 seem to kind of focus more on a short-term goal or or uh, destination. Not being what we were, no longer being children, but now we are to grow up. So he's using an analogy here. In fact, some imagery. Be children. He's probably not talking literally, but that's part of what you're going to analyze. And growing up, he's probably talking about not physically, but he's probably talking about spiritually here because of what he says to follow and the whole context. We are, well, speaking the truth, in other words, a participial phrase that tells us how we're to do this, to grow up in all aspects unto him. So now 14, all of this is going to go together. All of 15 is going to go together. And I might even, and it should probably include six, uh, 416 as a part of that as well. So. All of these are going to be the major parts of my outline, and then the little pieces within that will be more of the detail within that. And in my exegetical outline, and by the way, this is a little bit more of what your paper will look like. You'll state the main idea of the paragraph that you're studying. The main idea that I came up with is the giving of spiritual gifts I'm trying to summarize everything in verses 12 through 16. The giving of spiritual gifts results in the edification of the body or a more simplified description or spiritual gifts results in edification. I might include other things, make it a little bit more detailed, but that kind of summarizes that it has the giving idea It has the direct objects in there, spiritual gifts. Or if you come to the conclusion, the giving of spiritual gifted men, maybe that is another way of describing it, uh, results in edification, the equipping of the body, uh, or the equipping of the saints for the work of the building up of the body. That's the equipping idea. But it also includes this equipping until certain things, until we attain to a certain level, and we have some contrasts of where we were and more immediate edification issues in verse 15 and 16. So I try to capture it. Um, it might be a better statement of it, but at least that's, that's a, Fair attempt. And that's a summary of everything within my exegetical outline. I don't know if you have it handy there. But since it's in chapter 4, I try to fit it into the broader outline of the book of Ephesians. So I have two Roman numerals, and in this case I've broken the book into at least two parts. There might be a third part that comes later, but at least at this point, I see two major divisions. 
chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 3, and then Roman numeral 2, another divisional idea that I will try to capture everything there. Chapter 4, 2, and I don't show you where the end of it is. I'll let you see if there may be even a third division, but somewhere in there before, if not the end of 6, somewhere before. And then a subdivision main idea. This is chapter 4, and that's going to go beyond the paragraph that I've got in question here, so I don't give you the end of it. And I'm going to have a statement for the paragraph 1 through 6. The American Standard breaks that down into a separate paragraph, so I'm going to come up with that. And unity of some sort is probably going to be a controlling idea there, but I'll have some other words to describe for 1 through 6. And within A, I have a 2, and that's our paragraph. That's verses 7 through 16. Now, I didn't diagram it because I have, there's other sentences in there. And verse 7 seems to be a sentence, so I break it out, and I give you a kind of a, you know, this is what I came to then. The giving of gifts involves grace. Break it down into two parts. The grace is for each Christian. And then we have a description of the grace given. That's verse 7. Then we have a second sentence that I see, 8 through 10. If I remember right, maybe there's even more than one sentence, but at least that groups together. I'll have to go back and look at it. And this idea of the giving of gifts kind of permeates not only the passage that we're looking at, 11 through 16, but it seems to be part of 7 through 10 as well. So the giving of gifts has Old Testament support. He quotes an Old Testament passage. So we have a biblical basis there, verse 8, and then he amplifies that biblical basis, 9 through 10. And then we arrive at least at the first part of the, the first sentence in the New American Standard in the paragraph that we're presently studying. I gave you an example of the diagramming. So I summarize that. The giving of gifts results in far-reaching results. And then if you skip down to little d there, I capture 14 through 16. The giving of gifts results in immediate ministry. So I have two sentences that kind of add to the idea of this giving of gifts resulting in edification. And 11 through 16, we have two parts to that, or two aspects of it, a far-reaching long-term, or you might even say ultimate results, something along those lines. And then 14 through 16, immediate ministry. You see how I'm trying to put all these parts together? And then verse 11, that independent clause, that's the independent clause, verse 11. The foundational gifts are manifested in gifted men, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. So I've got a little A there, little B, little C with the parentheses. And then verse 12 summarizes the ministry of gifted men is amplified. What is that ministry? Uh, that has the three parts. We've broken down the three part, three major prepositional phrases. 
gifted men equip Christians for service. Christians perform the work of service. The resulting ministry is edification of the body. So I've handled that ministry or that purpose for the giving of gifts. In fact, I might include the word purpose in there as well. Uh, I might have the ministry and purpose of gifted men is amplified, or I might change it to the purpose of gifted men is amplified, something along those lines. I'm trying to capture it, capture everything in verse 12. And since verse 13 is a dependent clause, I try to summarize it. I didn't give you the details of the outline there. Just I, I'm, I'm just giving you an outline or uh, an example of the outline. The ministry is performed until the results are attained, and now you can break it down, little a, and each of those might even have smaller parts as well. And then 14 through 16, the giving of gifts results in immediate ministry, 14 through 16. And so we have two parts to it, verse 14 which captures the main part of the independent clause. Ministry of gifts corrects immaturity. That's to no longer be children. That captures all of that. And then 15 through 16, the ministry of gifts stimulates maturity. Kind of a contrast in there. 14 through 16, or 15 through 16. And I break two parts out of verse 14. The maturity manifests itself in instability. Try to summarize the tossing of waves, etc. The immaturity manifests itself in deceptive influences. That's carried about by winds of doctrine, trickery of man, craftiness and scheming, etc. And there's more detail that I'd add to 15 and 16. And then I began verse 17. It's part, that's number three, because it's part of the broader subdivision of A, and I don't give you the end of of it, but it's number three, and there might be a four, there might be a five, depending on how it breaks down. Everybody see that? I do. Great. Yep, sounds good. Super. Everything's clear as long as you're explaining it. (laughs) As soon as we hang up, it no longer gets clear, right? Yes, as soon as I tried on my own, it gets really unclear. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, I I know what you're experiencing. I've gone through that many, many times. So, uh, that's outlining, and that's also a good place to take a break. And why don't we take a break, and we'll come back and look at another area that we need to consider in interpreting a passage, history, and culture. So take about six to ten minutes, and we'll come back. Last hour, we completed our look at structural analysis. So we're going to take another area that we deal with when we are exegeting a passage. And this deals with history and culture. And when we talk about history, this is important. If you remember when I 
talked about it even in the introduction, how important history is in terms of the Bible and how history is basically based on what the Bible teaches us concerning history. And you could even say that even secular history, even though the secularist doesn't know it, that history is derived by observations of what God is actually doing in the universe, even though the secularist doesn't know what God is doing. And the Bible records for us the major historical events, and everything in Scripture is tied to history, so it's very important that we take into account any issues or things related to history in any given biblical text. Some passages are more overt and refer to historical either issues or events or refer to specific incidents in time, particularly the time frame that the books are either written in or in which the audiences receive. But they're all written in a certain context. So you have to take into account that historical context in order to understand what the author is trying to communicate. In a real sense, all of us, when we read scripture, are reading somebody else's mail. In other words, things that certain authors in a very, very different and distant time frame from ours have written down for particular audiences. So some of the things contained within their book are not necessarily overtly referring to history, but they all definitely are dealing with things within that historical context. So it's important to look at that. And along with history, because of the different time frames of different books, you have different cultures that are reflected. And those cultures reflect different time frames, but they also, even within the same time frame, for example, the first century, you have different cultural contexts that passages come out of. In fact, entire books come out of those different cultural contexts. And the readers are experiencing different things. The culture of the Corinthians, for example, is very, very different from the culture of the Ephesians across the Aegean Sea there. And both of them were very different from the culture in Jerusalem. So you have different cultures represented. And the more accurate we can understand a little bit of those cultures and historical background, that gives us insight into what that author is intending to communicate. And this is a little bit of a review, but let's emphasize it again. These are the things that you want to consider. You want to be conscious of the author of the passages that you are reading and understanding something of a circumstance. And in varying degrees, that circumstance and that author will have an impact on a particular passage, sometimes less, sometimes more. In epistolary literature, it is not as 
prevalent as historical narrative, for example, but all the same, we want to take into account, for example, we're studying Ephesians in this course, Paul as the author, what was his situation? Well, he, this is a prison epistle, so he's in prison. And what are his circumstances in that prison? What were prisons like? That's a cultural issue. Prison, what were they like in the first century? In fact, where specifically was he in prison? What were the reasons that he was there? And that might have some bearing on his reasoning in sending this letter to this particular audience. So what is his circumstances, and particularly the circumstances of the writing of the letter itself? But sometimes his character, sometimes his background, sometimes his lifestyle, even a profession, uh, have a bearing on what an author writes. Just like any human author, these things contribute to our communication. All of you come from different backgrounds, and that influences your communication to others today. So the historical background of, a, of an author is important. Second Im- importance is the circumstances of the readers. What was their situation? And we can pick up sometimes directly, but oftentimes indirectly, when we look at the book of Ephesians, we get a sense that that church didn't have a lot of issues or problems. Paul doesn't identify specific things like he does to the church at Corinth. So there seemed to be more stability there. So you don't have hardly any references to their circumstances, which indicates that this may have been a relatively more mature body of believers than perhaps that that you'd find at Corinth. But were there other circumstances that might have influenced Paul to write to them? And is he addressing perhaps other issues in there that need to be dealt with? Now, Ephesians, not so much as other books like the letter to the Corinthians, or not so much in terms of historical narrative, for example. But it'll have some influence, so we need to be aware of it. (laughs) The occasion of writing particularly, and this kind of combines the two, what was the occasion, what motivated Paul to write in this case? What you're dealing with something in the Old Testament, what motivated Jeremiah to write? What were the circumstances? What was the time frame? What was the situation that he wanted to address? What was the occasion of that book? And what was the situation of those that he was writing to? What were their needs? What is he addressing? So the occasion of writing. Now, when we do the special hermeneutics part of the course, one of the major characteristics of epistolary literature, like Ephesians, Romans, Galatians, etc., or First, Second Peter, or Jude, they're classified as epistolary. One of the major characteristics of epistolary literature is they are called occasional writings. 
And by occasion, what we mean is they're letters that are written to address or to deal with a particular occasion. So the more that you understand that occasion, the better you will be in a position to understand what that communication entails. I think I gave you, at least it seems like I gave you the example of me cleaning out a, a drawer that had some old things in it, and most of it I threw out. Came across some letters of a old girlfriend that I hadn't seen in many, many years. And out of curiosity, I just opened it up and started reading it, and there were some things in there that had, I, I, I didn't understand what that communication was. And the reason I couldn't understand it, even though it was written to me personally, and I knew the person, I still had trouble understanding what she was talking about. And then I had to think about what was the situation, what was the occasion of this letter? What was going on at that time? And once I understood the occasion, oh, okay, now I can see what, uh, what the communication was all about. Well, letters are like that, and we're also even further removed because these are not letters that are addressed to us personally. They're letters that are written to a different audience, but since they were believers and we are believers and it is inspired and God intended it not only for them but for us, then uh, we need to read them, but the better we understand that occasion, the better we will be in a position to understand some of the passages. And some of the confusion over some of the passages and some letters, I think, can be traced back to not understanding the occasion of the letter in general. So some of the particulars, major particulars, and these are applicable to every book of the Bible, some more so than others. Some of the particular issues in terms of history that are in the passage itself, certain things might be referred to. Now, we may not have all the information, we may not have all of the historical background, but in some cases we have some. The book of Acts gives us a lot of insight into what was going on when Paul writes these books, and all of Paul's books we can put within a certain time frame in the life of Paul. So the book of Acts may give us some insight into what was going on in this church and what was going on with Paul and what was he addressing here? What are some of the issues that he's addressing that are historical in nature and particular to that particular group? But in order to understand the passages around it or dealing with it, it's helpful to understand what was going on in that church. So where do we find information? In other words, I'm, I come across this reference, this historical reference in this book. Now, how, how do I find out more about this location or this reference to a, an event? Well, the book itself sometimes will give you insight. It might give you more information if you just keep reading. In other words, the book of Acts, for example, explains a lot of the historical situation. 
of basically the rest of the New Testament, all of the letters. So the book of Acts is very handy, but uh, the book itself is the first place that you look. A book like Ephesians doesn't give us a lot of help because there are very, very few references to the occasion or the historical background of the book. But the rest of the New Testament, like the book of Acts, particularly in this case, or sometimes the Old Testament, oftentimes that history has an impact on other books of the New Testament, or if you are in the Old Testament, then you don't have the benefit of the New Testament because the New Testament wasn't in existence yet. That history hasn't un- hadn't unfolded until later on. So you're dependent on other books of the Old Testament, and there are many historical books that lay foundation for everything that follows. For example, the book of Genesis lays a foundation for everything that follows in the rest of the Bible and more specifically, the Old Testament. So you could do a word study if you have a reference to a situation. Uh, A word study might not only give you that situation. For example, you're in the New Testament, it refers to Sodom. Well, you can go to the book of Genesis and find some insight, but you might do a word study on Sodom, and you're going to find that Sodom is referred to in many books later on. So that might help you. That might give you some insight. It might at least stress the importance that God saw in the situation at Sodom and Gomorrah. So the New Testament, the Old Testament, give us a resource of history, and like I said, The Bible gives us, I believe, the framework for all world history. And in fact, that is the the inspired account of of history that we have in not only Old Testament, but New Testament as well. But uh, again, there's limitations as to what we have available in the Bible itself, so we can go beyond that. There's a lot of reference works that come from people that have studied history, looked at other writings in the time frame of some of the biblical events. So these are helpful. In fact, this is the purpose of a Bible dictionary, for example. That's a reference work that the writers of the articles in there dealing with whatever historical issue you're dealing with. Uh, They've researched these things. They've gone to outside sources. They've gone through the Bible. They've summarized it in an article in a Bible dictionary. So Bible dictionaries are helpful. In an expanded form, we call that a Bible encyclopedia. They have longer articles, more research, more detail. Introductions to the books themselves. Uh, there are books that are devoted simply to giving this introductory background material of history and geography and culture, these sort of things. These are very helpful. Introduction to the Old Testament, introduction to the New Testament, and commentaries on the books themselves. Those are very helpful. Virtually every commentary will have either an introductory chapter or a whole section 
that gives you the historical background of the book that the commentary is dealing with. So you have all of that dealing with the author, the occasion, the the readers, and probably has some comments concerning some of the cultural issues as well. So those are some of the resources that are available to help us come to conclusions concerning some of these issues that we come across. Culture, similarly, we could almost duplicate what we just said about history and instead of referring to history, refer to culture. Same concerning the sources, but what was the cultural setting of the author, the the readers, and what was the cultural setting in terms of the occasion of this letter? So those areas as well. I gave you some background and a list of many of these cultural areas that can include, we put the category of geography under culture, because that influences culture as well, but things like types of houses that they lived in, types of clothes that they wear, the means of transportation, issues of economy, what kind of economy is behind this book, this passage. And we've also said that varies from time frame to time frame. The patriarchal, in general, culture was very different. But even within the patriarchal culture, we have a a Canaanite culture, and then Abraham is... In that culture, and he came out of a Mesopotamian culture. So there's some influences of his background from Mesopotamia, or of the Chaldees. And now he's interacting with people in the land of Israel that are within a Canaanite culture. And you see a lot of exchanges there as well. So you have patriarchal culture, and then subsets within that time frame, patriarchal in terms of time frame, but you have different cultures even within that time frame. Later, you have more Mesopotamian, more Egyptian, Greek, Roman. So you have a variety of cultures that have existed in time, and each of them have their own distinctions, and they're different in themselves. So those are the areas in terms of the difference differences in culture, but also in terms of differences in the way they built things, in the tools that they use, differences in dwellings, differences in even things like clothing, social customs, practices, religions, certain rights, warfare, and sometimes you have warring cultures even, different different peoples warring with one another, using different weapons, different uh, issues relating to warfare as well. So lots of issues, lots of areas that come into play, 
And each passage is unique, and each passage brings its own cultural issues. Some of the particulars. I just went over some of them. Politics, sociology, economy, religion, agriculture, legal issues, architectural issues, military issues. Now, in hermeneutics, by the way, you asked about what you could do a special paper. This would be an area as well, because today in hermeneutics there are disputes concerning the extent of culture. And the abuse today seems to fall within two major areas of controversy. One of them being evangelical feminism. In fact, there's a whole kind of theology that is almost developed within that camp. And the tendency is to view many of the passages, particularly New Testament passages, and particularly dealing with uh, women and men and the relationship, and particularly also marriage, viewing those passages and proclaiming an idea that I think is foreign to the Bible, but they use the cultural argument. In other words, we live in a different culture than first century culture, and some things like submission to husbands, that's outdated, that is cultural, and we live in a more, they would say, enlightened and more elevated culture, and uh, the passages that deal with that relationship are cultural, so we need to kind of adapt. So they reinterpret some of the passages dealing with roles in marriage, and I think it's an abuse of this, not only the cultural principle, but an abuse of the use of these cultural issues that pop up in the Bible. So that's one of the areas that Whole books have been written concerning this, what I call, evangelical feminism. I don't doubt their salvation necessarily of some of these scholars and writers, but I think it's a misuse in the area of hermeneutics and particularly the misuse of culture. Another growing area is the whole homosexual community. That whole area attempts to set the various passages, Old Testament and New Testament, that deal with homosexuality, and in general, they all condemn it. But some theologians within that, that are sympathetic at least, use the cultural argument that that's the way it was in those days, first century or time of Moses, for example, because Leviticus deals with that issue as well. And again, we're living in a later time. Things are different. Today, there's a need to accept the whole concept of homosexuality. So we reinterpret these passages in light of a different culture. So I think that's an abuse. And again, books are being written along those lines today. And there's a whole theology, you might say, that surrounds that homosexual community. But 
yes, there are differences in culture, and yes, there are certain things, for example, certain commandments that we need to apply somewhat differently in our time frame because we live in a different culture, and certain things mean certain things differently in this culture than they did in that time frame. But there's also limits as to what those areas are. So there are cultural issues that need to be dealt with, and you can go beyond, I think, and abuse the cultural aspect. There are limitations, and we would draw the line in a different place than the evangelical feminist movement or the homosexual community movement. We would see a line more conservatively. That's a proper way to describe it. And there's some tests. Roy Zook, in his book, has a good section discussing all of these issues. In fact, he brings out some of the things I just mentioned. And he gives at least four different categories that limit the use of this cultural idea of moving away from what the text seems to be saying because of a difference in culture. He says, number one, some situations, some commands, some principles are repeatable and continuous and are not revoked anywhere else. And they should be applied more directly in terms of what is being said within those passages. An example, I don't remember if he uses this, but for example, the Ten Commandments, you might use the cultural principle, well, we're no longer under the law, which is true in the New Testament, and therefore they're no longer applicable in a New Testament circumstance in the church age, you might say. But then again, you find out that in the New Testament, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in one form or another in different places. The only one that is not is the Sabbath. And because that one is not repeated, and in fact we have clear guidance in concerning the Sabbath, we don't, in the church, observe the Sabbath. It's part of the nation of Israel and part of not only that culture, but also had its particular purpose in time. So we don't observe the Sabbath as the Jewish people did in not only the Old Testament, but even in the first century in the time of Christ. So that's the first category that Roy gives. He gives a second one. He says that some situations, commands, or principles pertain to an individual's specific, non-repeatable circumstances. I think I used the example of Abraham, you know, commands that were given to him specific with Isaac that was isolated and pertained simply and specifically to to him. Uh, Paul in the New Testament gives instructions to bring in 2 Timothy 4 at the end of his life. I think it's an instruction to Timothy to bring the scrolls and his an extra coat, coat I guess. 
Well, it's a command, but not only because of the historical situation and the culture it pertains to Paul in that circumstance, so we don't, we can find applications that we can draw on a broader principle, but the principle or the statement itself or the command itself uh, is confined to that historical situation and in that cultural situation. And the third one that Zuck gives is some situations or commands pertain to cultural settings that are only partially similar to ours, in which only principles are transferable. In other words, we can derive principles from them, but some of the specifics were not to necessarily carry out, or it may in some cases even be impractical. So some behavior that has a certain particular meaning in one culture may actually have a totally different meaning or even understanding in a different culture. I think I've used the example of the Romans 16.16 where it encourages you to greet one another with a holy kiss. And in our culture, it, that would probably be inappropriate. Within some cultures, it might be appropriate, but in general, probably not. And at, at least in our American culture, there are some cultures perhaps outside of our country where it would be appropriate. So the idea there is you don't greet them with a holy kiss, but what's more appropriate in our culture is a hug or a handshake or some expression of affection other than a physical smack on the cheek, if you will. So partially similar to our situation. So we, we utilize the principle in giving a warm and loving greet rather than the specific situation that's described in the passage. And then there are some situations, number four, that Zuck gives is some situations or commands pertain to cultural settings with no similarities, but there are still principles that are transferable, those eternal principles. We'll talk some more about application next week, and I'll probably refer to these again. So this is dealing with the the culture. So that's culture and history that needs to be taken into account as you study and exegete passages. You won't have as much in Ephesians. So your papers, um, there won't be too many things that you'll have to deal with there. So there won't be a need to, in fact, you're not supposed to go to commentaries, but uh, you can go to a Bible encyclopedia for some of these cultural and historical issues if they do come up in your passage. So we've looked at the biblical text, the original text. We've studied word studies. We've analyzed structure, particularly within a sentence. We've just completed looking at history and culture. There are other areas as well. Verse 4 Actually, two through four are the most important ones that you will be dealing with.
there's some other things that you want to consider as well. So let's talk about some of them. You're coming to conclusions in your paper because you want to conclude what is the meaning of this passage? What is the meaning of the details? What is the meaning of the words? What is the meaning of the sentence? So we're basically coming to conclusions concerning what did the author try to communicate. So there's other areas that you need to come to some conclusions on as well. Some of those areas may deal with grammatical issues, the grammar itself. Now, that last assignment, I asked you to kind of look at your passage to see what what was the main exegetical issue and the thing that was keeping you from understanding that passage, maybe it's a grammar. And more than likely, it's a grammar that is an obstacle because in a lot of the sentences, in Ephesians particularly, a lot of those sentences are very long, have lots of words, lots of parts, and you just have one sentence, so it may be a grammatical thing that I need to solve, so I need to spend probably more time doing grammatical analysis than anything else in that passage. If you're dealing with more historical narrative, you probably won't encounter as many grammatical issues, but you'll have other issues in other areas. They'll be primarily historical and or cultural in those books. So you could include that as well, but since we've already talked about it, I don't have it on this list. There might be some structural issues. How do these sentences relate to one another? How do these parts, now if you're within the sentence, that's still grammatical, but if you're outside of the sentence, how do the sentences within a paragraph relate? How do these paragraphs relate? Where does it break? Where does he change topics? Or where is he moving to a different, broader outline? What are the divisions here? So it may be structural so you'll have to come to some conclusions, even on the smaller level, within the paragraphs. You may have a theological issue in your passage that you need to deal with. A statement that doesn't quite seem to fit with other statements, or may go against a theological idea that you think is pretty sound. And how does that fit in, and how do I resolve this theological issue? So you'll have to come to some conclusions concerning theology as well. Genre, if that's an issue. Now, if you're within a book that's the same genre, you know, you'll do that at, in your preliminary study. But if the genre changes, for example, in the, in the Gospels, you could look at the Gospels in general as a literary form or genre in themselves, but one of the characteristics of the Gospels is they contain a variety of genres. Uh, you can have a parable in the Gospels, or many parables, obviously. You have historical accounts. In other words, just a chronicling of an event with the situation. Uh, that's different from a parable. Uh, you might have a discourse. You might have Jesus giving a speech, basically. That's a different genre. It has different characteristics. So, in the Gospels, the genre might change from passage to passage, so you need to maybe think through 
Okay, he's giving this parable. I need to keep in mind the, the characteristics of a parable and apply them to this passage, whereas the passage before, it was not a parable, so I don't do the same thing. So I treat it a little differently. So issues of genre, we're speaking broadly. Uh, Ephesians, obviously, is epistolary, so it's not going to change. And if you're in a book that has consistent genre, then it'll only come up at the very beginning when you do your preliminary exegesis. You want to come to some conclusions concerning purpose. What is the purpose of this word? What is the purpose of this sentence? What is the purpose of this paragraph? How does that paragraph fit in in terms of what purpose does it serve? So asking those questions, coming to some conclusions concerning that. Why did Paul include, remember we're just on my mind, I'm remembering what we just talked about in terms of Ephesians. What What is the purpose in that Ephesians 4 passage, uh, verses 14 through 16? Well, I kind of answered that by saying this gives a more immediate description of the purpose of spiritual gifts. In the more immediate, there are two aspects there, so... Uh, I see how that fits in and what purpose it serves in that broader paragraph. So these are the kinds of things that you're coming to conclusions. And some of those conclusions will be reflected in your exegetical outline. In fact, all of these conclusions, your grammatical, structural, sometimes even theological, and uh, purpose will be reflected in your exegetical outline. So these are other things, these are some of the major things, but whatever is at issue, whatever needs dealt with in your passage, maybe a word study itself, maybe a a word needs very, very careful understanding, otherwise the whole passage may not make sense or you have a distorted understanding of the passage if you don't understand a particular word, so you can include that as well. So these are other Conclusions, I don't include it in this list because I already have it on the broader list of word studies. So, other conclusions. Number six. This is the stage after you have come to a place where you feel rather comfortable that you've done as much as you can do in terms of your study. You've tried to answer some questions. You may not have them all answered. There's some things you're still unsure of yet. But somewhere in here, you want to do a verification stage. That's part of the interpretive stage. In fact, you can separate that out if you wanted to. And let me just remind you of what we've been talking about. We're applying the scientific method. And in the scientific method, we have this analogy or this same process between science and exegesis. We looked at observation, and we said that is very, very important, whether you're dealing with scientific issues or the biblical text, exegesis. In science, you're looking at the natural realm or nature or the creation In exegesis, you're making observations on the biblical text. And I probably don't need to remind you, but the scientific method comes out of 
the modern early scientists that were Bible believers, they took their exegetical skills and applied them to studying what nature reveals about God. So they made observations on the natural realm. They came to some generalizations, some conclusions concerning the natural realm. We call that a hypothesis. This is an initial conclusion. may be right. It may be partially right. It may be totally wrong. But at least we've come to some conclusion based on our observations. So also we make some interpretation of the biblical text. And as we work our way, doing word studies, doing grammatical analysis, doing historical studies, we come to some conclusions concerning the meaning of the text. And once we're somewhat comfortable with that, now we want to verify that. So we have a verification stage in the scientific method. In science, we construct a test that verifies or substantiates the hypotheses or a test that potentially could disprove it because we don't want to hold to it if it doesn't reflect reality. So we come up with a test that attempts to falsify the hypotheses. In exegesis, we want to substantiate the meaning that we have come to some conclusion on, we want to substantiate that it is, in fact, a biblical conclusion. In other words, it's in harmony with the author's intent, and it's not in contradiction with other parts of Scripture or other passages elsewhere. So that's the verification stage. And I put it as part of the interpretive stage here. Because once we've gone to the commentary, now we either rethink some of the conclusions or modify them, and we work back and forth here, making maybe further observations as well. So we kind of interchange between these three parts of the scientific method. And then later on, next week, we're going to talk about application, where we're going to utilize the conclusions that we've come to or the understanding that we've come to on this passage In science, the analogy is engineering. In exegesis, we'll come to applications. We'll do that next week. That'll be the main area that we'll study next week is application. We won't exposit, but I'm giving you everything that you'll need to be prepared to do Bible exposition. So let's talk about commentaries and the place of commentaries. And I put it later... In your exegetical process, our tendency is, okay, I've read the passage a couple of times. I'm a little bit familiar with it. Now I jump to the commentary. And uh, that's a that's puts you at a disadvantage because now, as you go back and you read the passage again, everything that you read in the commentary is going to sway your conclusions, whether they're right or wrong. You're going to be swayed in the direction of the commentary or commentaries that you read. They will have a direct influence on your conclusions. So it's better to leave them for the later stages after you've wrestled with the text an adequate amount of time, uh, at least diagrammed the passage, and at least tried to come up with at least a rough outline 
And at that stage, you've probably wrestled with a lot of issues in the text already. And by then, you've come to several conclusions concerning the meaning, particularly when you come to doing an outline. Because an outline is a reflection of most of the conclusions you've come to in terms of the thoughts of the author and thus thinking God's thoughts after him. So, if you do it later in the exegetical process, now when you read the commentary, not only will it be easier to read, but you'll be coming across things that, oh, okay, I already thought about that. I already asked that question. I've already dealt with that issue. And I've already resolved some of the things that the commentary is dealing with because I've thought it through and I've looked at it with enough observations that I've come to some conclusions that I have some confidence in. So the first purpose of a commentary is to substantiate that good work that you've done. You've worked on certain things in the passage that have brought you to certain conclusions and you've thought through them already. So now you're in a place to be able to see what other people have thought about those same things. So by substantiating what you've done, you are solidifying the conclusions that you've come to. And now you have more confidence in the truth of what the passage is teaching. And it's not simply uh, your opinion or the things in your background that have swayed you to certain conclusions. In other words, you may have uh, had a theological background that has influenced your thinking, and that theological background, it's not all, it's not bad, but it'll influence your thinking concerning that passage. But now that you've done an independent study of it, maybe you revise that theology or theological idea that you're thinking of, and the commentary can solidify and confirm that you're on the right track. And or, we'll talk about other things in a moment here, it'll correct. So, one of the purposes is to substantiate that work that you have already done. So, it is verification, verify, verifying your personal findings and solidifying and giving you confidence that uh, you, in fact, are not only orthodox, but have discovered or uncovered, you might say, what uh, the original author intended. So you'll verify the good work that you've done. And you will all make mistakes, will come to wrong conclusions, And sometimes by reading a commentary, you might say, oh, I missed that. I didn't make that observation, and that's important. And given that thought, that observation, uh, that's going to change the conclusion that I've come to here, especially if there's different views. You might have come, you might not even been aware that there's different ways of taking a certain phrase or a passage. And inadvertently, or maybe because of your background, you came to one conclusion, and now this commentary is bringing to your awareness that maybe that's not 
the correct conclusion. So the commentaries will correct some of the mistakes that you and I will will make. And the better we get at this, the fewer issues will need correcting. Uh, in fact, the better we get at it, the more it'll verify that we're on the right track. And that comes with more experience and uh, more occasions of dealing with more and more passages and more and more books. But occasionally we still need correction. Now, back to the verification, it doesn't mean that the commentary is necessarily right. In fact, the commentary may come from a very different theological perspective, and the commentary may be swayed by that theology that that commentary is coming from. And you might have done a better job in terms of more objectively looking at the passage than the commentary had. And even though it may be different, it's not a correction, but uh, you might have confidence that what you've concluded is actually more biblical than what you come across. And that's not unusual, uh, especially if you're reading commentaries from uh, a different theological perspective than what all of us come from. For example, when I exegeted the book of Revelation, the first couple of times that I went through the book, obviously, you know, those first times you're, you're trying to just get at the heart and the essence of these passages and trying to understand. There's a lot of issues in the book that you need to resolve. So you concentrate on commentaries that are coming from a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture position, and so it substantiates that in your thinking. But the last time I went through the book of Revelation, I deliberately chose commentaries from different perspectives. In other words, a commentary from a historicist interpretation of the book of Revelation, from an amillennial Interpretation of the book of Revelation from a post-tribulational viewpoint, uh, commentary from an idealist perspective in terms of the book of Revelation. Uh, it was deliberate because I wanted to see how do they come to these conclusions? Where do they come from? Or is there any substantiation from them? And it just solidified that the approach that we take in terms of a literal hermeneutic validated itself just in studying these other commentaries because I could see that every one of those commentaries that did not come from a literal grammatical historical contextual interpretation the difference was hermeneutical all of those commentaries had to spiritualize had to take a, a more non-literal approach to the passages in the book of Revelation, and it was pretty obvious. So, uh, you won't always agree with the commentaries, and um, if you can substantiate your conclusions, you might disagree with the commentary. But, again, uh, on many occasions, good commentaries, particularly those that are from the perspective that we believe in, grammatical, historical, contextual, 
uh, oftentimes we will be corrected by them, and rightfully so, because we want to be accurate in the teaching that we convey to others. So commentary serves the purpose of correction. Another major thing that commentaries do is uh, illumination. The Holy Spirit has illuminated them, and we missed something that was in the passage that is there. And now as I read through the commentary, oh, I missed that. Now, oh, okay, that, that, that gives insight. Uh, that may also serve to even correct, or it may serve, oh, okay, that substantiates something else that I said earlier. That adds to why I, I came to this conclusion. This is added insight and illumination. And that's another common experience. And some of those things will just kind of stick out in the reading of the commentary. Uh, when you miss something, then it, then it's very insightful that maybe somebody else came across it. So this is where the body of Christ works together to mature us. As the Ephesians passage says, he's given different gifts, different gifted men. Some of the writers of commentaries are very gifted in not only communicating the ideas that they've come up with, but some of them are Pastor teachers, if you will, even though they may not have a congregation, they are, they may have that gift or they may be teachers. Uh, they may even have gifts of evangelism or prophecy even. They may be church planters, which would be like an apostle. And from that giftedness, they, they add depth to our understanding. And now that they've published, now I can go and read them and gain illumination. The Holy Spirit has spoken to them and can use the Holy Spirit through them to help me to gain illumination from the passage itself. So that's the verification aspect of interpretation. And again, I want to emphasize, do a certain amount. You have to evaluate how much time you have to give to a passage. Uh, you don't have a month, for example, if you are teaching on a consistent weekly basis, so you have to do all of this within a week to be prepared for the Bible study that you're going to teach on Tuesday night, or, well, you're here on Tuesday night, uh, Wednesday night maybe, and you only have a certain amount of time, so you have to make a determination of how much work you can do on your own before you consult the commentary so that you can get this thing done and you're not consulting the commentary at midnight Saturday night for a Sunday morning sermon or something. Okay, so that's commentaries and where they fit in. I think they're valuable. God has used men historically to minister to the church. And, in fact, what you are doing is you are writing your own commentary. At least you are compiling a set of notes that if you were a writer, you could convert into a commentary that you could publish yourself. If you are applying the things that we're talking about in this course, then basically you are writing your own commentary, primarily for yourself and for those that you minister to, but some 
seminary students actually are more scholarly and are able to write commentaries. Okay, seven. So that's verification number six. Seven, that paper that you write in a sense is this seventh stage of interpretation, summarization. And what we're doing at this stage is just trying to bring together all the things that we've studied. If we've looked certain things up in a Bible dictionary, and I've written some notes here, now I want to kind of bring all this together. If I did a word study, where does it fit in? Well, the word occurs in verse 7, so I want to put it in my notes. Uh, right where verse 7 is being discussed. So how do we bring everything together? Another word for this would be synthesis, but it's also organizational. Summarization in an organizational sense. And I've done a lot of work. I don't want to lose it. I want to preserve it not only for myself, but I want to put it in a form that I can use it. So I want to put it in a form that I can use it tomorrow when I teach that Bible study. And if you have a lot of notes, uh, there's things that you can do to abbreviate that just for the Bible study. But you want to have extensive notes that you can keep on file down the road. Because your ministry, as you continue, uh, may change or may expand, but in many ways, the things that we study today will come into our lives later on, or you may be doing a, a, a different study to the same group, but there's things that you've already done, like the word studies, for example, that same word pops up, and if you have a way of retrieving this information, and you've organized all the work that you've done, then you can easily just flip through those notes. Okay, in Ephesians, I did a word study here. So you look up where it is in Ephesians. Oh, it's in chapter 5. Okay, my notes are here. Okay, here's the Bible. Here's the word study. I don't have to do that word study again. At least I don't have to develop the range of meaning. What I can concentrate on, okay, how is that word used in this different context now? I've already spent three hours on the developing of the range of meaning. Now I can spend five, ten minutes looking at, I've got five categories here. In this context that I'm studying today, it fits into category number four. And you just review what you've done. And the same is true for all of the other areas as well. I've taught some books, well, I shouldn't, can't say several times, but some at least two times and others three, four times. And I don't go through the whole exegetical process over again because I've got my notes that I've already organized and summarized in a way that I can go back and utilize them. So now what I do is I expand what I've already done. I review what I've done, but I also expand upon it. And maybe I want to do another word study that I didn't do the first time that I went through the passage. Or in a lot of cases, I will redo my my uh, diagramming 
because uh, those notes were just so messy, I needed, you know, I need to kind of clean them up to clarify just for my own. And it, just by going through the process of redoing it, it just reminds me of what I did, conclusions I came to. And as I've done it before, I might change, you know, I, you know, I might be, change, I might change the, some of the conclusions and now I'm kind of working through some of that. I might do further studies in other areas. And maybe I only read two commentaries the first time I exegeted the passage. This time I'm going to read two or three more. I'm going to have more time, so maybe I'll read four, maybe five. In fact, in the book of Revelation, I can't remember. I think last time the total number of commentaries that I've read is, I don't know, 20 maybe. But this is after I've done it a few times as well. So I just keep adding. And with computers, it's pretty easy just to pull up your electronic notes and just add to them and do a reprint of them. And now you have more more notes on file. So that's the essence of summarization. But what you're doing in summarization, one thing is you're coming to conclusions you're finalizing these conclusions, and you're finalizing them in your outline, for one. That's part of the summarization, is your outline. So you're refining your outline. And at this stage, what I'm also doing is I have a rough outline that I've developed as I've worked through the passage. And at this point of summarization, I'm either going through that outline again and thinking through how can I abbreviate it? How can I make it more precise? Because I'm thinking along the lines of printing it out for the, the class that I'm going to teach. And it's probably at this stage that I think, well, let me see. There, you know, I've got three C's here already. Let's see if I can alliterate all of the main points here and have C as my alliterative key here. So I try to clean it up at this point in terms of the outline because that's what I'm going to hand out. So conclusions, not just with the outline, but other conclusions. And what you want to include in your notes, not only the conclusion itself, but uh, how did I get to that conclusion? What were the reasons? What was the reasons or what were what what are the things that brought me to that conclusion? And I might have, well, there's five things in the passage that support this conclusion. One, two, three, four, five. So I got a list of these things. Because of this phrase here, this indicates this. And added to that, the meaning of this word here adds to that conclusion. Da, 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 da. So I've got whatever number. And that's when you come to the commentary, for example, going back to what we just talked about. And the commentary lists only two two reasons for the conclusion he came to, and I've got five. Um, I'm going to disagree with the, the conclusion of the commentary. I've got better support than he does. So that's what you're looking for here. Why did I come to this conclusion? What were the reasons that I came to? And in writing your paper, this is some of what you want to put in your paper. What brought you to that conclusion? And maybe it's just one thing. Maybe... Uh, you did a word study, and this is what the word means, and that's why you, why you came to that conclusion. But maybe you might have three, four, five, whatever. You also want to look for that evidence, those reasons, evidence based on the biblical text. 
a reason for coming to a conclusion, a reason that is not a good reason is, well, this is, this is what, uh, my pastor taught. Well, it may be a good reason, but if that's the only reason, well, is your pastor right? And hopefully if you have a good one, you'll, you'll say, yeah, most of the time you'll agree with him. But maybe you heard a, a message and they came to, they had different conclusion. Well, Maybe they didn't base it on the text, but yours is going to be based on the biblical text. In fact, that's our goal, is to come to these conclusions based on what the text says. Not what we heard from somebody else, not what we read somewhere else, not because of uh, denomination or whatever, but based on the biblical text. And you want to be able to account for those details. You want to account for all of the details of the text. There might be things in the text that you could take in two different ways. It's evidence based on the text, but maybe it's not as clear. Maybe it's not as well defined in this passage, so you might need to go beyond the passage, uh, but you go to the text to account for the details of the conclusions you come to. This puts you in a position to see the weakness of other conclusions, whether other ones that you come up with or others that you have heard or others that you might have read in a commentary. So it'll give you the weakness of other conclusions. And fifthly, this is just to make you aware that Conclusions have different weights to them, and what I mean by that is there might be a lot of details and lots of reasons why you've come to a particular conclusion, and they're all out of the biblical text, and the the commentators agree with you on this, and it fits with your theology, and uh, that's a conclusion that has a lot of weight because you've, you've not only found that to be true in your own study, but you verified it from outside study in terms of commentaries or messages or sermons that you've heard or teachings or uh, websites that you've consulted, that sort of thing. So you have a high degree of confidence in that conclusion. Now, some things in scripture are not that clear. And you may not come to the same conclusion as someone else. That doesn't mean that you're right. And it doesn't mean that they're wrong. In fact, they may be right and you may be wrong. But the passage may not be as clear. An example would be in Genesis 6. Who are the sons of God in Genesis 6 in the early verses there? Well, there are three major positions concerning what is the meaning of that phrase, the sons of God. And if you study commentaries and if you study the different views, you're going to, you're going to find out that each of the three views are held by equally scholarly, equally godly, equally skilled expositors, and yet they've come to three different conclusions. And when that happens, in general, you probably don't have enough in the biblical text 
to be conclusive. So the weight of that conclusion is not as conclusive, I guess, <laughs> or the weight is not as heavy, as you will, if I use an analogy here, as that other one where you have a lot of agreement and you have a lot of detail in the text and you have ten reasons why you've come to that conclusion. So there's different weights of conclusions. So I'm not going to go to the stake for my position or what I'm inclined to believe in terms of that Genesis 6 and the sons of God, but I may go to the stake if I'm demanded to in terms of issues relating to the Trinity, for example, or the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, those we we have high degree of confidence in, uh, not only from any individual passages, but the overwhelming evidence that we have from Scripture itself. So we have weight of conclusions. And oftentimes when I'm presenting a passage or teaching a passage and I have a passage where there's two possibilities and one of them is not overwhelmingly stronger than the other, I'll generally just lay it out to the, uh, the class or the audience and, and encourage them to seek it out for themselves. I'll say, you know, scholars differ on this and equally scholarly and you study the passage for yourself and see what you come to in terms of your conclusion. So you have to take that into account. And my teaching is oftentimes dependent on kind of this conclusion in terms of the weight of the conclusion. And I might say I'm inclined in this direction or I feel confident in this direction, but keep in mind there's others that have a different conclusion. This is especially true in the whole area of eschatology. Now I'm very confident in the premillennial, pre-tribulational viewpoint and have taught not only the book of Revelation, but a whole course on eschatology. So I have a high degree of confidence. But at the same time, I'm not going to classify an amillennialist as a heretic because I know that many amillennialists are more godly than I am. And they've come to that conclusion, not flippantly, but have given it a lot of thought. And I give them that leeway, even though I would disagree. So that comes into play in terms of how you present a passage. In some passage, you pound the pulpit because you have a high degree of confidence if you are inclined to pound pulpits. So, the weight of conclusions. So, summarization basically is putting down your reasons for those conclusions. And if you have many, then you have a higher degree of confidence in them than if you do not have many. Another thing you want to do is you want to keep before you're thinking, what is, you know, what is the most important thing here? What is the main idea of this passage that I'm studying? I don't want to get sidetracked on all, I, I've done a lot of work and I've, I've done, went into detail on this word study and I, you know, I traced this rabbit trail and I've done all of this thing. Don't lose sight of what is the main idea of this paragraph that I'm teaching. And don't get lost in teaching it as well, but also in studying it. Don't get lost in all of the little rabbit trails that we may go 
on and lose sight of the main idea. So make sure that you have that cemented in your mind because that's going to control everything. Your outline is going to be an expansion of the main idea of that paragraph that you are exegeting. And as part of that main idea, your outline of the passage is basically an expansion of that main main idea, giving the details of that main idea. So part of summarization is coming to conclusions concerning how do you see that outline, and when I'm confident that I'm on the right track on the passage, then I print it out and hand it out in class. And within the outline, much like your exegetical outline, I will intersperse my notes. I will intersperse word studies. I will intersperse uh, things that I look up. If I have a quotation, I'll intersperse that within that outline. And I will put my exegetical outline in its great detail in bold print. In fact, I'll probably send you a copy of what sample from one of the passages or something um, of what it looks like but I'll put the particulars in there this is preserving this is saving this because down the road I'll come back and look this passage up in fact sometimes I'll encounter the same word in the same book and I just go back to where I did the word study in chapter 1 I'm in chapter 5 let's say I've come across the same word, so I go back. Now I know where it's at because it's in chapter 1. So I, uh, if I'm in chapter 5, one of the particulars I might say, I might say word study in chapter five or chapter 1, verse 18 or whatever. And this is part of just organizing your notes and do it with a thought of preserving them for down the road such that you don't have to do all this work again. You've you've poured over this passage for a week. You've spent 15 hours on it uh, five years from now, and you're involved with a new group of new believers, and you're going to teach through the book of Romans. Now you don't have to exegete the book again. You, you've basically done it. Now you're just going to expand it because now your your notes are well organized. And you can uh, uh, cut down on the work that you do. And now, whatever expansion you do, maybe it only takes you two hours to prepare rather than the 15 hours when you initially started the exegesis of the passage. So that's the interpretive stage. I hope I've covered... Basically everything. We've spent time looking at observation, taking notice, involving perception, looking at the details. And the more observations that we've made, the the better the conclusions that we will come to. So we want to spend lots of time observing. We separated out interpretation, but in actual practice, you'll go back and forth. You'll come to a tentative hypothesis or conclusion, and then you make more observations. 
you might refine that, then you go back, make more observations, you refine that further. So it's kind of an iterative process back and forth from observation to interpretation. So we've looked at and completed today the interpretive phase, seeking the author's willed or intended meaning. And what we will concentrate on next week will be application. Now that we understand the passage as presented by whatever author, now that I understand the book of Genesis or this passage in Genesis, and I understand it from the perspective of the original audience, in other words, this is how they would have understood that, I've come to these conclusions. This is, these are the conclusions that the original author intended. These are the conclusions that that original author would have understood or audience would have understood. Now, how do I apply this passage? And we'll talk about the various areas that we apply it. First and foremost, how does it apply to me? In other words, is it speaking to me? Is it touching on an area that I need to pay attention to in terms of changes in my life, but since all of you are ministering to others, uh, how does this passage apply to others? Some of you have families. How can I apply this in my my family? How can I share this with my husband or wife or children? And since I'm involved with people in the church, how might I apply this to them? Do I have opportunity? Do I need to confront someone? Do I need to encourage someone? Uh, how does it apply to this group that I'm teaching? You know, those are the things that we'll look at. And I'll give you some principles for application that will be based on what we've already talked about in terms of interpretation. So that pretty much concludes what I had designed for today. Any Questions or things that were not so clear or elaboration that need is needed. I think for me, I, I think I'm pretty well said on what uh, what the interpretation phase involves. Um, the only thing I would say is that for assignment five, uh, we were supposed to provide the uh, uh, area of conflict for our passage. And now I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, now I'm thinking that the cultural, uh, I gotta look at that again because uh, after tonight's class. Yeah. Well, part of the purpose for the assignments is to alert you to some of these things and you'll, you'll be able to utilize further work when you do your, your, uh, paper. Yep. Okay. Thanks, Ray. Great. Any other questions before we close? Dane's going to close in a word of prayer for us. Everybody else? Everything clear? Clear. Great. There's Eric. Everything okay, Andrea? Um, It's a lot of information, yes. (laughs) Okay. Feel free to call and we can expand if you Okay. okay. I think Steve's already had to go, so he's not there. Uh, go ahead and close for us, Dane, and we'll call it a day. All right.
Dear Lord, we thank you for Ray and his ministry. We thank you for Jafer and the opportunity that we've all had to uh, study at this uh, seminary. I uh, thank you also that we have completed our unit in interpretation, and I pray for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit as we utilize that and as we move forward into application. I uh, pray a blessing on our weeks that we're able to uh, finish out strong and with full understanding of these processes so that we can use them to share your word accurately and honestly. I ask for uh, your blessing on that. In your name, amen. Great. Appreciate it, Dane. Um, Hope you all have a very good week.